The sermon text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we're uh, beginning a new uh, series um, on biblical community. And biblical community in the Bible is often described through the one another's, loving one another, serving one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And so we'll be covering these uh, uh, all next five weeks. And the five we'll be covering the next week will be loving one another and then showing hospitality to one another. Um, the next one will be speaking the truth to in love with one another, and then uh, fellowshipping with one another, and then, of course, today, bearing with one another. Now, I know many of you may be thinking, you know, here we're living in a very conflicted world right now. The culture seems to be imploding. Uh, global conflicts are raging. Inflation is soaring. Markets are tanking. And spirituality is dying. And so what are we doing talking about kind of biblical community? Is it really that significant? And I, I would propose to you that it actually is. I, I think the best that we can do for the world is actually be Christian with people. Now, last week Mark spoke about the, the power of the gospel, the authority of Jesus being given to the church to, of course, declare the message to the, to the ends of the world, the nation's hearing. So we, we say the gospel has a centrifugal force. It, it goes out with power, and then it changes people as they begin to grasp the gospel. Um, but there's also a centripetal power. There's also this, this kind of, instead of going out with power, the biblical community can draw people into itself. When they see uh, our joy, our love, the way we serve, the way we sacrifice for each, for each other. So there's, there's both that outward move with the gospel to see the world change. But being the church and really being what we're supposed to be has a power of drawing people towards us. In other words, life together... As we do it, loving, serving, caring, bearing with one another, it actually validates or confirms or advances the reality of the gospel. I say that because Jesus said this in John chapter 13. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. Then he says this, he says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. So it's our discipleship, our relationship to Christ is actually validated by the way that we love each other. So our life together and the way we do it can actually declare and display the power of the gospel and the reality of Christ, or it can work against denying it. Uh, finished a book of late called Severe Mercy. It's a, it's a beautiful book, really. It's a, a love story of, of a couple that would ultimately come to faith through their experience at Oxford. The American citizens studied over in Oxford and um, came under the influence of many well-spoken Christians. And before they came to faith in Christ, he wrote this. He kept a really meticulous journal, which becomes the basis of the book. But he writes in this as he's being kind of evangelized. He says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. 
But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they're somber and joyless, when they're self-righteous or smug and complacent consecration, when they're narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. You know, it's amazing how we can, by the way we love and serve each other, practice these one another, we can actually draw the gospel and draw people to us to see the gospel. So we're going to be doing bear with one another, uh, bear with one another today. Now, Paul is obviously aware that when a group gets together, we may not get along so well. That we, the church is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people group. And so these differences become flashpoints for us to have conflict and struggle. And so he, knowing this and experiencing this, encourages us to bear with one another. So I want to do this sermon in two parts. First, I want you to see in this passage so that it's actually a textual sermon and not just a topical sermon. I, I want you to see that there's a call for unity here. Paul is calling for us to be one. And the path to this unity is through this forbearing with one another. So there's a call to unity and there's a path to achieve or maintain that unity, which is through humility and gentleness and bearing with one another. So look with me at one and three. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So notice what he's saying here. Paul's calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he goes right on in verse 3, which explains it, to maintain this unity. We are to maintain a unity of being one with each other and with God. Now, because we're parachuting into chapter 4 of Ephesians, I just want to remind you what's happened in the three previous chapters. God has... Paul has reminded the church of God's incredible kindness in saving us, really in two ways. Uh, God has moved unilaterally. That means that God has moved before the foundations of the world to choose us to be in him. It wasn't rooted in what you've done or who you would become, but God is a merciful God, and he moves to reconcile alienated men and women to himself. God has moved without regard in some ways of us to draw us to himself through Jesus Christ. So God has made a way through his son to reconcile us to himself. But God has also reconciled us to each other. He speaks about the, the Jew and the Gentile, that dividing wall, those massively different cultures have been brought together through the power of the gospel. So God has reconciled us to himself, but he's also reconciled us to each other through the power of the Spirit. So in the first three chapters, Paul is at pains to help you understand the incredible work of God's grace in your life. Not just fixing the problem. Now, you may not have felt that you were at enmity with God, but the Scripture says you were. Many of us live our lives, we don't even think about God. We live and breathe and move and make choices without even giving thought to God. The very one who has given us life. That is cosmic treason. That is absolute rebellion to God. And yet God has moved to reconcile us to himself. And it says in chapter 2, he's made peace between men through the cross of Christ. So with that as a backdrop, 
Then he says, he says to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. So we see in chapter 4, particularly verses 1, 2, and 3, it really sets the scene for the rest of the book. He's calling us now, the theology you've learned, put it into practice. Uh, The truth that you've gained, now apply to your lives. Uh, The doctrine that you've gained, now now put it in deed. So who you are in Christ is the first three chapters. What you do in Christ is the next three chapters. And, And you see that before Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy, he reminds us he's a prisoner again. This is another prison letter. Uh, Paul's in prison, but do you see what he's a prisoner of? He's not a prisoner of the Jews. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of God. Uh, Paul's identity is not rooted in in the bad of these current circumstances or the good when things were good. His identity, who he was, is in Christ, even as a prisoner. I think Paul, too, is implicitly kind of... He's kind of increasing the tone of his words. I'm in prison for the advancement of a gospel that is to be borne out through unity. So walk in unity is what he's saying. He says that you are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel or worthy of the calling. Notice what it says there. Look, look with me back at one. He says, walk, I urge you, I appeal to you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So friends, do you understand what that means to be called. So to be called means that God has moved before the foundations of the world to choose you to be holy. He has redeemed you. He has forgiven you. He has revealed the mystery of the plan of the ages to you. He has sealed you. He has made you alive with Christ. He has seated you in the heavenlies. He's prepared works for you to do. This is your calling. You are going to share with Christ in ruling over a new creation. You are children, those in faith, you are children of a new age. You have an inheritance of which no one, no thing, no event can take from you. You have a future that is as certain as God is. That's the privilege that the one who has come to faith in Christ has for them. He says, so now that you understand your calling, live in light of it. Live in conformity to it. Live in line with it. You know, when he says, walk in a manner worthy, that word worthy is used for scales. So think of two scales. And if you dump all the privileges on the one side of the scale, all those things that I just rattled off to you in the first three chapters, then what ought your life look like to be equal on those scales? How ought you to live? That's what he's saying. Walk in a manner worthy. In other words, just as it's unworthy for a judge to pervert justice by taking bribes, just as it's unworthy of a police officer who's been entrusted with responsibility uh, to overlook or to ignore the law for his own For his own purposes, just as that's unworthy, it is worthy for us to live in light of these privileges. Now, you walking in a manner doesn't make you worthy. No, no, no. He has made you worthy to walk in a way that reflects what he's done. This is incredible news. 
I mean, I, when I was going through the sermon, I was just praying that the reality of you being known by God before the foundation of the world and chosen to be holy and blameless in him, it would just overwhelm you. That you would understand what it means to be sealed in the spirit, forever protected. You'd be forgiven all your sins, all those things that we'd be embarrassed for anyone to know, all forgiven, redeemed, adopted. We look at Ezra's, we're adopted, we're no different, adopted now to be children of God. And, and this, this new reality, walking in a manner worthy, is explained in verse 3. Notice he says that we're to be eager to maintain the unity. This is how you, this is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy, is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're maintaining. Make no mistake, we don't create unity. God has created unity. That's the whole point of these first three chapters. God, in his mercy, has given to us a son who's reconciled us to himself and to each other. God has created this unity, and this unity has been applied to us by the Spirit. You see this right in verses 4, 5, and 6, which follow our passage. You see it clearly. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see God through the Son by the Spirit is making us one? Friends, do you understand the nature of this unity? It's a mystical unity. It's a spiritual unity. It's not an organizational unity that you may see it. It's a spiritual unity that has been wrought by the Spirit. Now, folks, I don't mean to think that a non-Christian in here is just going to all of a sudden sign off on that. This is for the one who believes. I mean, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. So God has brought forth a unity by the power of the spirit, reconciling us to each other. Through Christ, through faith in Christ. It's not a uniformity. This unity is not uniformity. It's not same. It's not look-alike. No, it's, we're to be different. Paul writes in Galatians, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're one in Christ. Our unity is in Christ in the midst of differences. In other words, our gender differences are not eliminated. They remain. They will always be male. They'll always be female. But though different, we're one in Christ. The slaves and free. There's no economic elimination. There are differences in economics. There are differences in ethnicities, and they remain. But, but we find a unity now, not as the world gathers around these temporal commonalities, but we find a unity now in the gospel and in Christ. He expects differences, right? I, I mean, differences are to be here. We don't want to, some churches, I think, find safety in the kind of this homogeneousness that we all are to look the same and think the same and dress the same and, and live life the same. There's no strength in that. What's unique to the world is differences coming together around the gospel. Isn't that what you see in marriage? I mean, think about it. A marriage, male and female, 
So two different genders. And they come from different histories. They have different backgrounds. They have different educational experiences. They have different hurts and pains. They have different goals. But what the man and the woman, they become one flesh. Those differences are to come together, not to eliminate one another, but to form a unity around the common love for one who has come to save us and to deliver us and to rescue us. I've performed a lot of marriages in this church and in premarital counseling, and those of you who I have done premarital counseling for, one of the things I always say is, uh, tell me about a conflict you've had or how you've worked through some of the differences. And, and some genuinely say, well, we've never really had a fight. And um, so tongue in cheek, I then smile and I say, well, you need to go have one uh, because you're going to have them because the differences are going to be there. And we need to see the power of the gospel bring you through differences to a oneness in spite of the differences. So I want you to see the differences and even conflict over the differences. It's not intimidating. We have a gospel that has a stronger gravitational pull as long as we're not selfishly pulling those things that we want. But, but, but if we're focused on the gospel, we will be one in the midst of the differences, which speaks volumes to the world. But secondly, do you see your responsibility in this? You are called. It, he calls us. He appeals to us. Walk in a manner worthy. There is a responsibility. You don't get anywhere fast walking. I mean, it's a slow process of which we're forging into this unity and walking in this unity. There's a slowness to it. Remember the tortoise and the hare, the old fable? You know, who wins the race? It's, by the way, if those of you who are confused, that's a rabbit and a turtle. Um, <laughs> But the, the turtle wins because it's just consistently applying and walking. That's what he's saying to us. There's no contradiction here between God saving us by grace and us walking and making every effort to walk. There's no, there's no contradiction. Why? Well, because he had to save us first so that we could walk. They're not parallel. One follows the other. He has to make us alive for us then to walk in a manner worthy. It's like me commanding a dead person to stand up. They're not going to stand up no matter how loud I shout. But if they're given new life, they can follow the command to stand up. God gives us new life so that we then walk in a manner worthy. Do you see how that works? There's no contradiction there. We have a responsibility, and that doesn't deny the privileges that we've been given. We can now, in other words, you, you're, not, you're not becoming worthy by maintaining unity, you're displaying that you've been made alive. I, I think when I was a lifeguard in, in um, high school, senior year, and we had to go through the certification training, and, and when we were being trained, they said, listen, you've got a responsibility that now you've been certified uh, to help people in peril in water, that whether you're on duty or not, you're called to exercise that responsibility. So if you're swimming at, uh, at some river and just some time that you're vacationing or enjoying friends and you see someone in danger, you got to go and use those gifts that you now have to go and serve them. And that's what I'm saying to us is we've been given privileges. We need to walk in a manner worthy of those privileges. So that's the first point. He's calling us to unity. Okay, notice with me, though, in verse 2, because he shows us how we 
achieve this, how we maintain this unity. He kind of gives us the how-to of being one. Look with me back at verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. So remember, Augustine said, he said, Father, give what you command and then command what you will. So God has to give us, give what you command, Father, but then command what you will. So God has given to us the Spirit. He's given to us salvation. He's given to us all these privileges. So now command what you will. And this is what we find in verse 2. So look with me, humility. So how do we walk in unity? Well, we are to walk with all humility. Do you realize, friends, that humility was not a virtue in the ancient world? To the Greek mind, humility was weakness. It was disrespectful to carry the image or the attitude of a slave. Only once Christianity introduced humility in the person of Christ, was it then a virtue? But notice Paul says, with all humility, you're called to live with one another. All humility. Uh, By humility, the opposite would be haughtiness or thinking highly of oneself. The proud person is is not the weak person. No, he's very confident in himself. Or herself. He's, he's confident. He's certain in what he believes and how he ought to live. He relies on his own ingenuity. He's very self-sufficient. But the humble person, the one who lives among us who is humble, is lowly of mind. Lowly of mind doesn't mean unintelligent. He just has a right perspective of himself in relation to God. Uh, humility doesn't mean self-deprecating, putting oneself down all the time. Doesn't mean that. A humble person can see his gifts or can see her gifts and rejoice over those gifts. They just recognize that they're derivative. They've come from God. They would say, what do I have that I haven't received? And why should I boast as though I didn't receive it? So the humble person can be a very gifted person. And they can know that they're gifted, but they know those gifts come from another. They don't come from themselves. A a humble person doesn't compare himself or herself to others. A humble person recognizes that God has made me the way I am, and I compare myself to God to get an understanding of who I actually am. Think about it for a minute. When you compare yourself to your neighbor, the playing field is quite level, and it's hard to be lowly of mind often. But when you compare yourself to Christ, or you compare yourself to God, humility comes very quickly. I mean, think about yourself for just a minute. Most people in this room couldn't hold their breath for more than two minutes. You can't live without breath for two minutes. Some may be longer, but not much. You can't change the height of your body. Can't change the color of your eyes. You can't go back and change yesterday. Can't reach back. You can't go to tomorrow and and fix something that might be coming. We're bound. Space and time. We have a finitude that is profound. If you want to be humble, begin to look at who you are with God. And what this does, though, is it promotes unity. Because we don't look above other people, or we don't look down on other people. We don't consider ourselves above other people. You know, pride ruins churches. Pride creates dissension and division. Uh, The the humble person, particularly in conflict, will confront themselves first. They're not going to just assume someone else is wrong because I have conflict. They're going to self-confront. They're going to, what am I doing? Where am I sinning? How am I exacerbating the problem? Uh, the humble person is going to stop and be self-reflective over their ownership of whatever conflict there is. 
The humble person, you know, it was Augustine who said, humility is the first, it's the second, and it's the third virtue of the Christian life. It's that important to walk in humility. But not just humility. You see that he speaks about gentleness. This with all gentleness. Gentleness, the word can be translated meekness. Now, we think meek person is a weak person. Of course, you know that it's not. The meek person is a strong person. They just have control over themselves. So I want you to think powerful horse marching in a procession. Under the control of the one who holds the reins. All that, that, that thousands of pounds of muscle just parading through the streets. That's gentleness. Having the power to respond in kind but choosing not to. Uh, the gentle person is the one who would rather be injured than inflict injury. Uh, the gentle person is the one who is sensitive to the unique needs of those who are around him. The general person is going to think charitably, kind, and not respond in kind. Gentleness, gentleness will promote unity because it creates an environment where you can be honest about who you are. You know, many people fear sharing their personal struggles or their theological doubt because they think, well, they'll be looked down upon. They'll be kind of marginalized. But the gentle person allows there to be that kind of room that you don't have to have it all together and you can still be accepted and and loved. The gentle person invites the wounded to himself. The gentle person displays the gospel. You know, Jesus, Jesus, if you read through the gospels, there are very few times, maybe one or two, where Jesus actually expresses who he says he is. Not, not he says he's the light of the world, but about his own person. It's only in Matthew 11 where he says that, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. The same two words I'm describing here. He doesn't speak about his person, his own emotional, that he's gentle and humble. He doesn't do that very often. We ought to pay attention to it when he does. Uh, gentleness is inviting. It de-escalates conflict. This is what Carol's been just so gifted with in our own marriage. De-escalating conflict by being gentle to maybe the snarky comments I make. Just de-escalate. I think about, you know, we're reading a book as a staff called In the Year of Our Lord. Sinclair Ferguson has written a book about the history of the church. He's not a trained historian. He says that right in the first first few pages. Uh, but what he's doing is he's looking at Christian history as a, as a family history. It's our family, and it's a history of our family. And so he takes each chapter, covers 100 years of the past 2,000. So it's 20-ish chapters, 20, 21 chapters. And in the fourth century, of course, Augustine comes to faith in Christ. Augustine, probably uh, one of the second or third greatest minds of Western culture, And he came to faith in Christ in part through the influence of Bishop Ambrose. And here's what he writes about this bishop. He says, I began to like him. At first, indeed, not as a teacher of the truth, for I had absolutely no confidence in the church. But as a human being who was kind to me, gradually, though I didn't realize it, I was being drawn closer to God. Just through kindness through gentleness, not bringing harsh response. 
Think about Proverbs 15.1, a gentle, a soft answer, it turns away wrath. Uh, This is a necessary ingredient for us to be one. So humility is one. Gentleness is another. But but forbearing or bearing with one another in love, really the point of the sermon you see there is the third ingredient for this unity. Now, when I speak about bearing with one another, I, I think all of us probably feel a little bit uncomfortable like this is probably an area maybe you have your theology down maybe you have your purity down maybe you have your honesty down but when it comes to bearing with people who are annoying or aggravating or awkward or difficult it's a lot harder you you tend to avoid you duck in a room or you all of a sudden forget something and you got to go back to your office or you know you, you tend to move around and avoid it's hard to bear with difficult people. Can we have a collective, I never do this, but can we have a collective, yes, you're right. Yes, it's difficult to bear. And yet this is a, I didn't pull out the, can I hear an amen? I didn't pull. Although I wanted to, I've always wanted to do that. Yes, my, thank you. So he says, bear with one another. Let me explain what bear with one another means. To bear with one another means to endure the differences of others. Their different styles, their personalities, their experiences, the way they handle certain situations. Uh, to bear with one another is, is to endure, but it's an active endurance. It's not passive. It's not, I'm just going to bear with you. No, there's an activeness to, I'm going to exercise charitable judgment to why they're doing or to what they're doing. Uh, To endure is to be patient. You notice he says, patiently bearing with one another. Patience means long-suffering. It's opposite of the person who has the short fuse that just explodes like that. Now, when I talk about bearing with one another. I'm not talking about putting up with people. I'm not talking about putting up with people and looking down your nose at them. I'm not talking about enduring with people with resentment that you have to endure with them. I'm not talking about enduring with people and then making plans to create some distance in the relationship. I'm not talking about enduring with people, but then holding grudges. Or I'm not talking about enduring with people just because I hate conflict. There's an activeness to me exercising charitable judgments regarding the behaviors and the deeds of another. I'm talking about bearing with people who are different in the way they parent their children without bringing judgment to them. They're different in the way they handle their marriage. The feminine, masculine distinction in their marriage is different than yours. I'm talking about bearing with people who are awkward, who don't take social cues, who, who just have a certain annoying aspect of their personality that you find offensive, or they don't respond with the expectations. I'm talking about bearing with leaders who perhaps aren't leading as you would expect us to, or the sermons aren't engaging as much as you'd want every week, or the music isn't as stimulating as you may hope. I'm talking about bearing with people that are different, that are a different stage of their movement towards God and sanctification. What I'm talking about is what he says in that little phrase at the very end, to bear with one another. A lot of people do that. A lot of marriages do that. But he says to bear with one another in love, in love, Uh, by choice, gladly. 
to bear with one another. To bear with one another in love. Because God has borne with you. God has been forbearing with us. So Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His forbearance to us was so that we would see and experience his kindness and come to faith in the gospel. Our forbearance with one another in love is so that we're leading them to greater and greater sanctification. It can only be done by those who have been born again. It can only be done by those who have tasted a love that God has been forbearing with us. And one has come among us who has borne flesh. Jesus, who has lived among a people steeped in sin, himself sinless, and yet forbearing of us, and then bearing our sins and our shame and our guilt. Do we, can we have any conception of understanding how aggravating and how annoying we must have been to him? And yet he bore with us to save us. He was kind to us. And now we are called to be like little Christ, Martin Luther would say, and bear with one another in love. The way people respond, the text you get, the email, the glance, the maybe not being included in something. Can we bear with them? Uh, let me give you five considerations to develop a greater forbearing spirit. Five considerations. Uh, number one is forbearance will come to you as you consider your own self, as you consider your own brokenness, your own sin. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do the sins of others that, well, the sins of others that trouble you, do you ever consider the trouble of your sins? You know the troubling nature of their sins against you, but do you ever consider the troubles that your sins create with people? Uh, do you have a laser accuracy on the splinters in their eyes and forget the board in our own? Are we often like King Lear, who says, I am a man more sinned against than sinning? Would we say that? I'm more sinned against than I sin. You know, the reason Jesus says, take the board out before you take this. The splinter's got to come out, friends. The splinter has got to come out. We just need you to be clear-sighted to take my splinter out by removing the board in your eye. Paul said this about himself. I wonder if we could. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Can we say that with Paul? I don't think we could. But I receive mercy, he said, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe on him for eternal life. I mean, for us to understand our own brokenness, not, not in a morose, self-condemning way, but in a way of creating in us a capacity to bear with others who are like us. How, when was the last time you considered how forbearing God has been with you? When I wrote down the question, my answer was, I don't know the last time I thought about God bearing with me. 
Secondly, uh, forbearing comes as you fight to assume the best of others. Uh, do you tend to, when you're in a conflict, when you get a word or you get an email or you get a text or you get a glance or you have a conversation or you have a conflict, do you tend to assume the best or the worst of someone? I think many of us tend to assume the worst, uh, probably because we're self-protecting perhaps or self-justifying, I don't know, but we tend to assume the worst. Can I encourage you to fight to assume the best? To assume the best of their motives? Now, I've had people tell me, I know why you did this. And, and I've said, do you want to know why I think I did it? It, it, may, it may just shed some light on the situation. We can assume the deeds of others. And when we do that, there'll be no forbearance because you've already been the judge and the jury. We've already, we've already convicted them. We know why they did what they did. And so forbearance goes right out the window. Charles Spurgeon says, I would be better, it would be better to be deceived a hundred times than to live a life of suspicion. I always wonder why people are doing it. If you want to know, ask them. Just say, why did you do that? Or why did you say that? I mean, you can clear the air. You can make sure and confirm. But, but let's fight to assume the best. So, so when you, you feel brushed or you feel burdened or, or, or conflicted over someone said, that then then just assume maybe they had a bad day. You know, that, that, that old example in um, the One Minute Manager, a uh, business guru wrote it. Um, I think it was One Minute Manager. It was a great book about 100 years ago. Uh, but but he, he speaks about the assumption uh, that we make, and he talks about riding on a train, and he's on this train. The man gets on with his four kids, and the four kids are just, I mean, they're on fire, right? They're running up and down. They're going crazy. They're doing everything. And this man, this businessman is looking at him and just getting increasingly angry that he's doing nothing about his children. And they're just terrorizing this train. And the, and the dad is just almost catatonic, ignoring the whole thing. And I forget how the story goes because the Example just popped into my mind as I was preaching. But, but I remember him going up and the man explaining that I think the mother had just died. He, you assume that this man's ignoring his children. And he just had a train come through his life. So, so assume the best. It will increase your ability to forbear. And then thirdly, forbearance comes to you as you, as you seek it with wisdom. We need wisdom to forbear, friends. Now, I do want to say, because some of you are saying, yeah, Tom, but if I forbear and if I endure the offenses of others, I'm really cultivating a monster here, and i got to deal with it fast. Otherwise, we're going to have a monster loose. Well, just hold on for a minute. Proverbs 1911, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Or Proverbs 10, hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses. You know, Carol has helped me a lot in terms of, she goes, let it be words to the wind. Let it be words to the wind. Just let that pass. You don't have to respond to it. Just let it go. You know, th th there's wisdom that we need. But I'll tell you, we tend to err on wanting to correct offenses immediately. There is a place to let it pass. Now, listen, when I say this, I hope you know me well enough 
that I'm not saying forbear with unbiblical or unethical or illegal. I don't think forbearance encourages indifference. I don't think forbearance denies a call for repentance. But I do think that it might create a little bit of a gap of time that maybe we can just let a few things pass. And then, and then fourth, I would say that forbearance comes to us as we prize unity in the church. Do you prize unity? Do you want us to be one? Will you work toward that end? Will you be eager? Will you be quick to forgive? Will you give the benefit of the doubt? Will you keep short accounts? Will you seek to be reconciled with those with whom you have conflict? Will you make every effort? Even with those people, will you remind yourself that when an aggravating person or an awkward person comes, that you're going to see them as a child of God? John Stott, the pastor of All Souls, used to be the pastor of All Souls Church in London, um, shared actually this, uh, what he would practice when he would see someone coming down that he had a particularly difficult time with. He would say, oh, what a precious child of God you are, how much God loves you. He would remind himself, they're a child of God. You know, and God loves them. You may find them awkward. God loves them. Now, if I say that to you, it's probably not a good thing. <laughs> but but he's, he's reminding himself of a biblical truth so that he can maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Remember, it was, it was uh, Lewis who said that all the people, he, I love this line, he said, you've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, they are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of an at. But it's the immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So, so we want to prize unity by valuing the people as members of this church. And then last and finally would simply be uh, that forbearance comes as you recognize sanctification is messy. Uh, listen, sanctification is very, very messy. It's very slow. It's very different for one another. Some will grow quickly in the things of God. Others will not. Others will take two steps back, four steps back. It's a messy endeavor. And we have to recognize that. If you think that when a person comes to Christ, everything should just change, you have a lot of disappointment ahead for you. Uh, there are some that do move very fast. Others struggle. Maybe they come from a much more difficult background. Maybe they have habits that have been established. They come to faith later in life. And particularly in a mid-sized church or even a small church, we see the messiness of sanctification more. You can go to a, you can go to a big box church if you want. And I'm not throwing stones here. But, but you can find big groups of common people that are like you where you don't have to forbear as much. Or you can live out a life of anonymity, kind of going, and you're more of a spectator than a participant. You won't have to bear with one another as much. No, it's when we really know each other. That's why so many of you, you know, when I get all excited about the holidays, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, Uncle Ernie or Uncle Joe or whoever, you know. In the family, it's different. You can't avoid them. And, but it's good to know that it's messy, but it's a work that God's doing, and we, bearing with them, will promote it. So, brothers and sisters, 
this is the first of five for bear with one another. Let's just take a moment and ask God to give us grace and patience with one another and uh, that we might display this unity in a centripetal force, being uniquely joyous with one another. Ask God for grace or strength or come up to me uh, later if you want, if you have questions. And I'll pray for us in just a moment. What is man that you are mindful of him? When I consider the sun and the stars and the moon that you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of? Father, you have borne with us. You have been forbearing. You have given to us a son to, to save us, deliver us, and rescue us. Father, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to fill us even now, to fill us with hope and joy in all the privileges that you have given to us. You have called us to be your, your sons and daughters. You have given us an internal inheritance established in the heavens. You've seated us in the heavenlies. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and you've made us alive in Christ. Oh, Father, uh, grant us your spirit that we might walk in a manner worthy of this great calling. Father, may we be given grace to walk in humility. Help us to understand ourselves in light of who you are, not others. Help us to be gentle with our words in particular. We can speak with the thrusts of a sword sometimes. Father, forgive us. And grant to us that, that patient, bearing modeled off of your bearing of us. Father, help us, to be, help us to be a people who there would be such safety, such joy, such happiness that it would be a draw to a world that can't find this and won't find it in their clubs. May we, may we be that for your glory and for our good and the good of those outside this church. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.